before we start, let's um, pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word, the Bible. Lord, we ask that uh, you would help us to uh, truly hear your word today and learn uh, what you have to teach us from it. In Jesus' name, amen. How can I be the greatest? How can I be the greatest? Uh, like Spectacular Zaff, uh, I think it's a question our world is obsessed with. Uh, it's definitely a question most Aussies are obsessed with. It seems like we're always competing. Uh, we're always constantly trying to be the greatest. Uh, this is uh, obvious in the world of sport. Think of the Olympics. They're all about finding out who is the world's greatest athlete in every sport and every event. Who would watch the Olympics if there were no medals up for grabs? Our obsession with greatness uh, goes beyond the sporting world in the corporate world. Uh, the greatest businessman is, is the one who can churn out the most work, uh, win the biggest products or, or sell, uh, win the biggest uh, contracts or sell the most product. I think it happens at home too. Uh, do your mums feel the pressure? The greatest mum is the one who can juggle three kids under five with an immaculate house, delicious home-cooked meals, and a happy husband. <laughs> she does all this while maintaining a bubbly personality, an active social life, and a perfectly groomed exterior. Now, of course, greatness is, is something that mankind has always been obsessed with. Uh, just look at the Tower of Babel, Alexander the Great, the, the uh, British Empire. And if we're not the greatest ourselves, we're always looking up to whoever is. We're either idolising them or waiting for them to fall so that we can claw our way one step closer to the top. We live in a world that's constantly asking, how can I be the greatest? But I wonder if you've ever asked yourself this question. How can I be the greatest in the kingdom of God? What does it take to be the greatest follower of Jesus? I want to suggest that it's good to want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. It's an awesome thing to aspire to, but it's very different to being the greatest in the world. It's very different to being the greatest sportsman, the greatest businessman, or the greatest mum. It's far more important than any of those things. The disciples asked this question in our passage today, and the answer Jesus gives them comes as a real shock. Being the greatest in the kingdom of God is very different to being the greatest in the world. We're going to have a look at uh, the passage and find out how we can be the greatest in the kingdom of God. But first, let's start with a quick recap, the story so far. For a while now, Jesus has been on a teaching tour with his disciples. He's been getting away from the crowd, spending some time alone with the disciples and teaching them about who he is and what he's come to do. In chapter 8, we came to the turning point in the gospel. Jesus asked the disciples who they say he is, and Peter answers, you are the Christ. The disciples' knowledge is progressing. They confess that Jesus is God's anointed saviour, but they still have some way to go. They still only see Jesus with blurry vision. When Jesus tells them about his impending death, Peter rebukes him. They think that Jesus has come to win some great victory for the Jewish nation here and now. So Jesus teaches them what it truly means to follow him. 
If they want to follow him, they will have to take up their cross. The tension builds as they head towards Jerusalem. Peter, James and John witness the transfiguration. They learn that as the Son of Man, Jesus has come to suffer. And finally, in the few verses leading up to our passage for today, Jesus teaches the disciples plainly about his mission as the Messiah, that he'll be handed over to men and be killed, but after three days come back to life. And again, we saw that the disciples still don't quite understand, but they're afraid to ask Jesus what he means. So as we come to today's passage, we have a, a bit of a funny picture of the disciples. They're a bit like a class of grade five boys. Uh, they're not naughty, which is unusual for grade five boys. <laughs> but they're just a bit clueless. Uh, like most boys, it takes a while to get the message through. They, don't, they, they still don't quite understand. And, and so as they head towards Jerusalem, the scene is set for another lesson. They arrive at Capernaum. And when they come to the house they're staying at, Jesus asks a question. He asks one of those questions that you just know spells trouble. It's the kind of question that when Jesus asks it, you, you know he already has the answer. And you know that the disciples are in for another lesson. What was the question? Well, have a look with me at verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? The disciples' response to Jesus' question is not encouraging. Silence. Like a group of grade five boys coming in late to class, when the teacher asks them, what were you doing? They don't respond. The teacher just has to look at them. He knows they've been fighting down on the oval, and the boys know they're about to get a lecture. Their silence only confirms their guilt. The disciples know that Jesus would not like the answer to his question, so he keep, they keep quiet. The disciples' argument on the road shows that obsession with greatness is nothing new. What were they arguing about? Read verse 34 with me. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. The disciples are arguing about who was the greatest and they're too ashamed to tell Jesus about it. This highlights the fact that they still don't fully understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Here they are expecting to walk into Jerusalem, expecting to watch Jesus overthrow the Roman government and start the new kingdom of God. And they're jockeying for positions in this new kingdom. If they'd really understood what was going to happen, I reckon they would have run a mile. So knowing what the disciples were arguing about, Jesus begins the lesson. If the disciples want to know how to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, then Jesus is the one to tell them. And what he says turns their expectations upside down. For Jesus, what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, well, it's the polar opposite of every notion of greatness in the world. It's not about coming first. It's not about being in charge. It's not about getting the glory. To be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you have to be the very last, and you have to be the servant of all. Let's see what Jesus says. And uh, just imagine how the disciples' jaws must have dropped when they heard this. Verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be, the, be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. 
Being the greatest in the kingdom of God is the exact opposite of being the greatest in the world. It's definitely not what the disciples had in mind. It involves sacrifice. Uh, it means for the disciples, sacrificing your position as the right-hand man to the, kingdom, the king of God's new kingdom and becoming a humble servant. And Jesus goes on to give the disciples a vivid example of greatness. How can you be the greatest in the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be the very last and servant of all? It means lowering yourself to accept those of the lowest status. It means welcoming those with no status in society. And Jesus finds someone just like that. He finds someone with virtually no status in society, a little child. Children weren't respected and loved in Jesus' day the way they are today. Children had no rights. They were basically the property of their parents. They had no status in society. But to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you had to become a servant to a child. The very idea was completely countercultural for the disciples. To give of themselves in this way involved a massive sacrifice on their part. I think the idea has been expressed nicely by Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. Uh, if you don't know the story, Darcy is a wealthy uh, socialite of impeccable breeding. Uh, Elizabeth Bennet is a woman of no wealth from a family of little significance. But Darcy falls in love with Elizabeth. Halfway through the story, Darcy begrudgingly admits his love for Elizabeth. He, he proposes, as he says, against his own better judgment. What a guy. <laughs> uh, now, of course, Lizzie rejects Darcy's marriage proposal. She is understandably angry at his rudeness and condescension. And then Darcy defends himself by saying this. <laughs> I love it. Did you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your connections? To congratulate myself on the hope of relations whose condition in life is so decidedly below my own? Fantastic. I, and I think the disciples' reaction to Jesus' words might have been pretty similar to Darcy here. Jesus' point is that to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you have to be willing to welcome and accept those of the lowest status. And by doing this, we welcome Jesus himself. So let's see how he expresses this. Verse 36 and 37. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. It's a striking example of what it means to be a servant, of what it means to be greatest in the kingdom of God. And what happens next shows that the disciples have not been servants to all. Uh, they clearly think very differently to Jesus about how to be greatest in the kingdom of God. It's a bit like John has, has just realised that they've been doing the wrong thing. Uh, and like a timid grade five boy at the back of the class, you, you can just imagine him slowly raising his hand. And we find that instead of being servants to all, instead of welcoming those of no status... The disciples have been looking down on others, looking down on those who they consider to have less status than them. Instead of displaying humility, we see an example of the disciples' pride. John says they came across a man driving out demons in Jesus' name, and they told him to stop. Now, you wouldn't think it's a bad thing to drive out demons in Jesus' name, but the disciples tell him to stop it. Why? 
because he wasn't one of them. He wasn't one of the twelve, one of the inner circle. Instead of welcoming this guy as a fellow follower of Jesus, the disciples tell him to stop what he's doing because he's not one of them. Read verse 38 with me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now clearly this isn't what Jesus wants. The disciples have failed to see that this man was the servant of Jesus. He's on their side, he's driving out demons in Jesus' name. But the disciples treat him as if he has no status. Jesus rebukes this attitude in the disciples. And uh, it, it doesn't do this just because the, the guy's performing miracles. Jesus said he could have been doing something as small as giving you a cup of water in Jesus' name, and you should accept him as a fellow worker. He's destined to receive the same reward. Uh, let's read Jesus' response together, verses 39 to 41. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. So the disciples are getting the hard word from Jesus so far. He reveals their petty argument about who's the greatest. He exposes their pride and he turns their assumptions upside down. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you must be the very, uh, the very last and the servant of all. This means humbling yourself to welcome even those of no status. And in the next verse, Jesus elaborates. How can you be the greatest in the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a servant of all and welcome those of no status? Jesus says, you must not cause any of them to sin. He's just been addressing the disciples' prideful, unservant-like attitude. And he says, when it comes to these little ones who you're meant to serve, make sure you don't cause them to sin. The word Jesus uses here isn't a common word for sin in the New Testament. It literally means something like to be trapped or made to stumble, uh, to sin in the sense that you fall away. It's the same word Jesus uses in the parable of the sower back in chapter 4. He uses it to describe those who hear the word but fall away because of trouble and persecution. So Jesus says to the disciples, do not cause them to stumble. And he states the seriousness of this in no uncertain terms. He says if you cause someone who believes in him to stumble, well, basically, you're better off dead. Have a look at verse 42 with me. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. You're better off putting on the concrete shoes and sleeping with the fishes than causing someone who believes in Jesus to stumble. So Jesus says to the disciples, to be the greatest in the kingdom of God you have to be the servant of all, welcoming those of even no status. This will mean sacrifice. Secondly, you must not cause them to stumble. And thirdly, Jesus applies the problem of stumbling to the disciples. He says to them, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, don't you stumble. And again, he uses some strong imagery to get the point across. 
to stumble and fall away from God has enormous consequences. Jesus presents the two destinations of heaven and hell. Uh, And if stumbling leads to hell, then it's worth doing whatever you can to avoid it. Jesus says, get rid of whatever causes you to stumble. No matter what you have to sacrifice in this life, it's worth it for the sake of eternal life. It's nothing compared to going to hell. He advocates radical surgery to avoid the eternal consequence of hell. Let's read the next bit together and and see how he illustrates this point. Verses 43 to 48. Uh, Read there with me. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a pretty graphic illustration of the seriousness of falling away from God. And Jesus finishes this lesson uh, to his disciples with the final sobering word. God's people will be tested. Followers of Jesus uh, will be tested with the kind of persecution that could cause them to stumble. And when these times of testing come, the disciples will have a job to do. If they can't do that job, what good are they to other followers of Jesus? So what is Jesus' final word to the disciples? Referring back to the argument that started this lesson, he says to them, be at peace with each other. Stop arguing and get on with the work work of the kingdom. For the disciples, following Jesus means taking up your cross and suffering, just as Jesus will suffer. It will mean sacrifice. It's not a cruisy trip to the top with the conqueror of the Roman Empire. Being the greatest doesn't mean what the disciples think it mean, thinks it means. Their job is to follow Jesus to the cross, and they can't do that if they're arguing about who's the greatest. Let's read the final two verses together, 49 and 50. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. So let me ask you again. How can we be the greatest in the kingdom of God? How can I, how can you be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Well, just like it did for the disciples, Jesus' teaching about what it means to be the greatest, it turns our ideas upside down. The world says that being the greatest means coming first. It means being the fastest or the richest or the most beautiful. Those who are the greatest in the world are served by others. But Jesus' definition turns these ideas upside down. To be the greatest in the kingdom of God is to be the very last and be the servant of all. So how will that change the way we live? I think Jesus' words are particularly relevant for how we behave together as Christians. The disciples imported the world's concept of greatness into their life as members of the kingdom of God. Jesus taught them that things had to be very different in the kingdom of God. And I think we need to be careful not to import the world's ideas of greatness 
into our life together as Christians. Our conduct towards each other should be marked by humility, not pride. And our aim should be to serve each other, to accept and encourage each other as fellow followers of Jesus. And we should be willing to serve not just the people we like or those who are part of our group of friends, but those who have no status, so to speak. Uh, Maybe this means serving people who are new to the church. It might mean getting to know people who who we haven't really met before, Uh, people who aren't already in our circle of friends. This, This should involve some sort of sacrifice on our part. It might mean giving of our time and efforts beyond our comfort zones. It might mean having a certain attitude towards other Christians, particularly those who are perhaps from different church backgrounds to us. We shouldn't assume that someone is not a genuine follower of Jesus. Uh, We shouldn't cast doubt on someone's salvation just because they come from, say, a different denomination. Uh, And we shouldn't reject a fellow Christian just because we think that perhaps they're not pulling their weight. Jesus showed that the disciples were wrong to reject the mystery exorcist uh, just because he wasn't one of them. And the size of the work doesn't matter either. Like the person who hands out cups of water What matters is that they do it in Jesus' name. Secondly, like the disciples, we must be careful not to cause anyone to stumble. When it comes to those who might be on the fringe of the church, those whose status with God we might wonder about, our job is to be even more willing to serve them. It's a huge mistake to let our pride lead us to cast doubt on their status before God to damage their faith by failing to accept and encourage them and cause them to fall away from God. And finally, we need to remember Jesus' words to the disciples. We have to guard ourselves against stumbling. Such a strong warning isn't given for no reason. Jesus' graphic illustration of cutting off limbs and gouging out eyes, it's really confronting. Clearly, we need to be willing to sacrifice anything in this life to avoid falling away from God, to give up anything for the sake of having eternal life rather than suffer the very real punishment of hell. I wonder what it is that that you have to cut off or gouge out. Personally, I can only think of one, maybe two million things. (laughs) It's better to walk around maimed and disfigured than to be found not following Jesus. We could talk forever about how to avoid falling away from God, but I'd like to finish by remembering Jesus' main goal here. This passage falls within a broader section of Mark where Jesus is teaching his disciples about his identity as the Messiah. He's teaching his disciples about who he is and what he's come to do. And bit by bit, the disciples are starting to see Jesus more clearly. In just a little while, Jesus will go on to fulfill his own words in this passage. The disciples will come to see who truly is the greatest in the kingdom of God. The one who was truly God came to earth as a man. Because of his great love, he who was first became last. He humbled himself to serve those who had no status before him. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Jesus provided the ultimate example of service when he gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. 
After he came back to life, the disciples would finally understand who he was and what he came to do. And they would have the perfect example of how to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. So as we think about how to be greatest in the kingdom of God, how we might uh, put ourselves last to serve others, how we might not cause other followers of Jesus to stumble, and how we might not stumble ourselves, let's learn from this lesson that Jesus taught his disciples. Let's be reminded of Jesus. Let's look to him as our example. Let's look to him and aim to be like the one who truly is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Let's pray to that God now. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the love that you have shown us in your Son, Jesus. We thank you that uh, because of his sacrifice, we have been given the perfect example of what it means to be the greatest in your kingdom, of what it means to serve, of what it means to not fall away from you. Lord, I ask that we would learn from this example and be able to follow it all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.